in broad terms, I would say it begins with David's rise to power in book one, uh, then continues with David's reign in book two and his difficulties. And then in book three, we have um, basically the fall of the Davidic kingship from David to the exile. Book four, we have uh, exilic anticipation of the future uh, king. And then in book five, you have the celebration of the reign of the future king from David's line. I think that's the, the broad uh, kind of movement of thought in the Psalter. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Real quick, before we begin this episode, listen to the end for updates on our Santa Ana Reformed Church Plant efforts and our upcoming Bible study on the Book of Judges. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is a book club episode presented by your brothers in Christ, Nick and Peter, from the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. After the episode, check out our show notes for a link to order today's book by Dr. James Hamilton Jr., Psalms, Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary. It's published by Lexham Press. There's also a link to our network of the Society of Reformed Podcasters and a couple links to find Reformed churches near you through the North American Presbyterian and Reformed Churches, as well as one for our Baptist brothers and sisters out there. So today's book club episode, again, we're honored and thankful to have James Hamilton. He'll be talking to us about his new commentary on the Psalms. So yeah, we have Dr. James Hamilton, PhD of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, professor of biblical theology and Old Testament at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and preaching pastor of Kenwood Baptist Church. He's also the author of a couple of books, some of the stuff that I've read and gotten acquainted with his work. So he's author of God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgments with the Clouds of Heaven and What is Biblical Theology. So we're going to talk about Psalms and more particularly the commentary he has coming out on Psalms with Lex and Press. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Hamilton. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. So this is a great series. Um, there's been, we're doing some other interviews on our show with some of the other authors. So we're excited to have you. This is uh, a book in the Bible in the Old Testament that almost, I'd say, pretty much everyone's heard of. Um, so yeah. it's a great topic for if you're a non-believer, you've probably heard about the Psalms. Um, if you're a believer, you've probably read a lot of the Psalms. So this will be a great review and you'll probably learn some new stuff. Yeah, um, I think it's either one of the most or the most quoted book. And the New Testament, so it's got it's got some great connections to the gospel too, which we'll talk about as well. Hmm. Yeah. So we'll just start at the beginning. What kind of drummed up your interest? What maybe from your background brought you into wanting to focus on the Psalms for this commentary series um, that you brought to the table uh, for your expertise? Sure. So as Peter just mentioned, the the most quoted books in the New Testament are Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Psalms. And uh, that drove me to want to, as best I could, understand those books. 
And so years and years ago, when I finished my PhD program, I began to read through the Psalms carefully in Hebrew. And I just, I just read one Psalm and then I would listen to it repeatedly. And then I would read the next Psalm and then I would listen to them in sequence. And as I began to do that, um, I, I began to notice some things that years later I saw con confirmed in what was happening in, in scholarship. And at the same time, I felt like I was seeing some things that weren't being highlighted um, as, as I thought they should be. And so I was very eager when I got an opportunity to, uh, to write on Psalms to do so. Hmm. Yeah, I just, I was telling Nick, uh, maybe a couple of days ago, I just started reading the Psalms in Hebrew, um, just okay. going through it and seeing just how rich and thick the Psalms are and how often even if it's not directly quoted in the New Testament, it just assumes there's allusions all throughout the New Testament. Jesus quotes it all the time. Paul quotes it all the time. It's, I mean, it's thick. Through the, I mean, it's, it's a gorgeous book in the way that it's used. Yes, no doubt. Is it, am I pronouncing this right? Mizmor? Mizmor, that's the Hebrew term for, uh, that's, that's translated psalm. That's correct. Cool. Yeah. There you go. I got a Hebrew word now. Hey, yeah, and I didn't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got nothing else from this podcast. You know what Psalms is in Hebrew. That's right. Great. Yeah. So that's some of the background behind this too. So the new Lexham commentary series. So what's kind of setting up a broad background? What's what's the former structure to the book? Because it's a long, it's a long book of the Bibles. How how do we view kind of its structure of the Psalms? Right. So um someone, and, and we don't really know who put the finishing touches on the canonical, the final canonical form of the Psalter, but someone has arranged it, arranged it into five books. Mm -hmm. And at the, at the end of each one of these five books, there's a doxology. And each of these doxologies has the same elements. Uh, they all bless the Lord forever and then include with amen, those, mm -hmm. those four things. And then at the, at the beginning of the next book, there's a change in speaker. So like in book one, it's, it's all David. Uh, 37 of the 41 Psalms are attributed to David. The only four that aren't attributed to David uh, have no super, superscriptions. They're not attributed to anyone. And then book two opens with Psalms of the sons of Korah. And then book three uh, opens with Psalms of Asaph. And then book four actually opens with a Psalm of Moses, a prayer of Moses and of God. And then book five opens the same way that book one does with no attribution. So there's a change in speaker at the beginning of each book. Hmm. And this is a, this is a big, uh, a big topic, but <laughs> yeah. I, there's a, a kind of impressionistic movement of thought that goes through the Psalter hmm. so that in book one, I'll just summarize briefly yeah. um, my understanding of these things. I think in book one, you're largely tracking with David's afflictions and difficulties from the time that Samuel anointed him to be king until he was established as king in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Hmm. And then in book two, you're really tracking David's reign, hmm. the entirety of it. And, and, you know, right there in Psalm 51, you have uh, his prayer of repentance uh, after he had gone into Bathsheba. Yeah. And, and that would fit right with 2 Samuel 11. And then there's a new period of difficulty introduced in his life in, in 2 Samuel 13. And that's reflected also in the Psalms that follow uh, Psalm 51. There's new difficulty introduced. And then over the course of the, the chapters of Samuel, as the story unfolds, David slowly, gradually recovers from 
uh, his sin with Bathsheba, but things are really, really never the same. Well, then you get to Psalm 72, the last Psalm in book two, and uh, it's, it's a prayer of Solomon. I think it's, I think it's a Davidic prayer uh, prayed for Solomon because it, it's, uh, it's a prayer for the royal son. So I would interpret it as David in uh, praying uh, God's promises, praying that God's promises will be fulfilled in the life of Solomon. And then Psalm 72 concludes with the words, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse are ended. And so it seems that you've come to the end of the life of the historical David. Hmm. And then in book three, um, Psalms 73 through 89, um, there are these, well, the first thing you encounter is Psalm 73, where this guy Asaph is tempted to envy the wicked. And, And I think those two Psalms are juxtaposed because you get all these glorious promises about the reign of the Messiah in Psalm 72, and then you get reality in Psalm 73, and the world <laughs> yeah. doesn't look the way that you uh. would hope it would look, you know, having read Psalm 72. And then as you continue through book three, there are all these threats to the temple. Hmm. And it's almost as though you're tracking with the narrative of kings, and the nation is getting weaker and weaker because of their sin until uh, Psalm 89, um, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, the temple is burned down, and the king hmm. From the line of David is dethroned. And, and that's the way that book three concludes. Psalm 89 looks like Israel's exile from the land. And this is where the prayer of Moses, the man of God, comes in, uh, because uh, Moses prays at this point uh, that the Lord would turn from his wrath and relent concerning his burning anger, which is the same thing that Moses prayed in the wilderness when the Lord said he was going to destroy Israel and start over with Moses. Yeah. Um, so I think that that prayer of Mo- Moses is strategically placed because it's as though uh, in the same way that the Sinai uh, covenant was threatened in the wilderness, now the Davidic covenant is threatened in the Psalms. And, and Moses, Israel's great intercessor, uh, stands in the gap to intercede, which, you know, you get the prayer of Moses, the man of God in Psalm 90. And then Moses is mentioned again. It's either in, I think it's in 105. I can just check quickly. No, it's actually 106, the last Psalm of of book four 106 23 therefore he said he would destroy them had not moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them so it's as though book four opens and closes with mosaic intercession on behalf of god's people Hmm. Uh, and and i think that the upshot of this is it's almost as though having been exiled from the land and without a king from david's line on the throne the people are in exile and they're, they're being urged to turn their hearts back to Moses, back to the law, and, and they're being urged to repent and, and seek, seek the Lord. And then at the end, the last words of book four, uh, the last words of Psalm 106, um, include at, at Psalm 106, uh, 47, save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations. And then book five opens... Um, in 107, 2 and 3, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, and redeemed is an Exodus word, mm-hmm. and, then, and then it says whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of book four, they're praying, gather us in, and then at the, at the beginning of 107, it's as though they're saying, now that he's gathered us in, let us praise him. And so I think that Psalm 107 it's written from the perspective of those who have experienced the new exodus and the return from exile, hmm. a- a- anticipating God's future salvation. 
And this is exactly where we find Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And it's as though they're saying, if if you ask, okay, how is this new Exodus and return from exile going to happen? Well, uh, God is going to say to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then uh, later in the Psalm, you know, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs or he will shatter the head or yep. head over the wide earth, you know, and I think an allusion to Genesis 3.15. Hmm. And then following that triumphant um, psalm about the future king from David's line in Psalm 110, you get this string of hallelujahs. Hmm. Psalms 111 through 117 are called the Hallel Psalms, which means praise. And hallelujah is praise Yahweh. And these psalms, they either begin or end with uh, hallelujah. And it's as though in response to the triumph of the future king from the line of David, they're praising the Lord. And, and then the Psalter goes on uh, from there. But so in broad, in broad terms, I would say it begins with David's rise to power, in book one, uh, then continues with David's reign in book two and his difficulties. And then in book three, we have um, basically the fall of the Davidic kingship. From David to the exile. Book four, we have uh, exilic anticipation of the future uh, king. And then in book five, you have the celebration of the reign of the future king from David. And I think that's the, the broad uh, kind of movement of thought in the Psalter. I love it. Yeah, that's that gives structure. I think uh, a book that most people don't, ha- don't know has that much structure to it and follows this, this Davidic kingship and seeing that Jesus is the new David, is the true king over Israel and over, over the world. Um, and also too, maybe quickly pointing out, cause I know you talk about Psalm one and Psalm two is, is kind of give us some structure to the rest yeah. of the, to the rest of the book. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a singular statement, which this is just sort of a side comment here. I think we have to insist upon more literal Bible translations Yeah, and we, sh- we should not impose a value from our culture for gender inclusivity uh-huh. upon an ancient culture that d- didn't share that value. It was not a value in ancient Hebrew culture mm-hmm. to emphasize that anywhere you've got man, you need to say man and woman, or you need to say them, or you need to say somehow, you know, somehow avoid the masculine singular. Yeah. So uh, Psalm one opens with blessed is the man. Yeah. And then later in the Psalm, it starts talking about the congregation of the righteous. So you've got an individual and then you've got a group of people. And, and then in Psalm two, um, you have the nations raging against Yahweh and against his anointed. And to just cut straight to the point, I think that the anointed of the Lord in Psalm two is the blessed man of Psalm one. And then if we ask, well, who are the congregation of the righteous? Well, Psalm two at the end of the Psalm says, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And it uses the same term when it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him, that it used with reference to the blessed man in Psalm one, Ashrei, not Baruch. Yeah. So, um, so who are the congregation of the righteous? Well, they're the blessed ones who take refuge in the blessed man. And then they're going to live like the blessed man, which is meditating on the scriptures. Mm. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot more that could be said there. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, there's form, there's structure. And instead of just being like kind of a hodgepodge of songs that I think people are used to, it's like, oh, this is just an ancient form of our hymn book today. Right. Oh, there's, there's, some, there's some gorgeous structure in the book that, that points yeah. us to the one who's to come. Yes. And earlier, you know, I, I talked about 
reading the Psalms in sequence in Hebrew and then listening to them in sequence in Hebrew. And what really jumped out at me as I did that was the interconnectedness of these Psalms and the way that I just, I just formed this impression that as I was listening to Psalm one, Psalm two was just continuing the story and Psalm three was carrying it forward. It's not as though we're reading disconnected, um, abstract, uh, unrelated poems that just happen to have been slapped together. No, these are, these are a strategically arranged collection with all of these internal points of contact with one another so that as you read them in sequence, you really come away with the impression that all these Psalms are about really the same things. Hmm. Yeah. That's incredibly helpful. Um, it's, it's clear why you wrote a commentary. On <laughs> so, yeah. so help for a little helpful thing for the audience. If you guys aren't driving and you want to write this down, <laughs> yeah. like saying, don't do this while you're driving. Yeah. Uh, the five books of the Psalms broken down. Um, if you want to write these down or book one is Psalms one through 41 book two Psalms 42 to 72 book three. 73 to 89 book four 90 to 106 and book five is 107 to 150 so that's really helpful structure how you you know broke that down very easily um and concise for us so uh you did touch on this a little bit of the authors who compiled the psalms i know we've heard king david maybe moses and solomon um could you maybe shed some light on the authors, uh, who they were, maybe how many of them we think there were, and who the book was really intended for? Yeah, I think a lot of sure. people, either from Spurgeon, where they've heard like, oh, the Psaltery of David's, they assume everything's written by David. And so mm-hmm. I think when people hear like, no, it's not just David, like their whole world breaks down. It's like, oh, the Psalms mm-hmm. are not from David? Right. right. That's a great question. So, you know, as we noted, Psalm, Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And we know from places like Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32 and 33, we know that Mo- Moses had poetic capacity. Yeah. And so if you ask me about Psalm 90, I'm going to say, I think Moses wrote it. Hmm. And I think that um, the people of Israel, you know, they preserved it, they treasured it, they passed it down. And then I think that the... Um, the, the very heavy attribution, I, I forget right now how many of the Psalms, I, I could look it up, but how many of the Psalms are attributed to David? I've heard I, in the I, 70s, like early 70s. Yeah, that, that sounds right. Um, I, I think that the project to put together the Psalter probably originated from David. We really don't, you know, we're not told this. We don't have chapter and verse on this. Yeah. But I'm inclined to think, that David himself wrote the Psalms that are attributed to him. And then that he looked at this material that he had put together and he decided I can put these things together in sequence so that together they tell a story that is wider than anything communicated by any one of the individual Psalms by itself. And then I think further that those who came after, and there are clearly, you know, Psalms like Psalm 137. um, It, it, it opens by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept. So it looks like it's been written by someone who was exiled to Babylon. Um, that, that psalmist, and then whoever included that psalm in the Psalter, I think they looked at what David had put together 
and they understood it and they agreed with it. And, and further, in order for their, their work to be received by the believing community, I think they further would have had to have been recognized by the believing community as having prophetic status. That is, they would have had to have been understood to have been inspired by the Holy Spirit so that they had rightly interpreted what went before and they were rightly communicating what, what God wanted his people to know. And if they were recognized as having been inspired by the Holy Spirit, then what they added to the Psalter would be received by the believing community as God's word. And then, you know, someone like perhaps someone like Ezra um, at the end of this whole process looks at the whole thing. And I think um, understood what David set out to do, understood what uh, the sons of Korah and Asaph and Moses and how everything fit together and perhaps put finishing touches on the whole thing. And again, I think this would be someone who was inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore had rightly understood the intentions of the earlier authors and was being carried along by the Holy Spirit to communicate exactly what God wanted in the Psalter. Hmm. Yeah, just to, make, just to make sure and have our audience understand this as well, when, when we say somebody who comes after David is compiling all the Psalms. That doesn't mean that the Psalms weren't inspired and he's just like haphazardly putting this stuff together. Um, maybe, maybe just like putting a, a fine point and saying, no, this is the inspiration. He's under the inspiration in his, in his um, editing, whatever you want to call it, put it, put it together. Is, is that, is that a good way of calling it where it's, it's not, he's like, Oh, this is, this is now inspired. I'm going to, I'm after right. David, I'm going to, I'm going to make the final decision. He's just recognizing what's already inspired. Right. I think that's right. So uh, as David, for instance, writes, let's say Psalm 8, mm -hmm. I think that the Holy Spirit has inspired David so that he has correctly understood Genesis 1, which he's commenting on, yeah. and Genesis 3. And, and he's rightly understood the promises communicated to him by Nathan in 2 Samuel, recorded in 2 Samuel 7, you know, an experience that David lived through. So David has rightly understood all of this so that when he sets pen to paper, He's, he's, he's right in his conclusions that he's drawn from earlier scripture, and he's right in the utterances that he makes. The, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit preserves the, and, and protects the accuracy and truth of what he's saying and leads him into truth. And then also, let's say Ezra, you know, we don't know that Ezra was the, 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 uh, the canonicler, so to speak. John Salhammer spoke of of someone who put the finishing touches on the whole of the Old Testament canon. But if Ezra did this, then I, I think that the kind, of, the kind of work we're talking about is recognizing, let's say, that you have Davidic material in Psalm 106, but maybe not all of book four is, is arranged in the order that we now have it. And so I, I, would, I would think of someone like Ezra being inspired by the Holy Spirit, rightly to understand the contents of Psalms 1 through 89, and then rightly discerning which Psalms were inspired and which were not, and then collecting and setting and then deciding this is the best order for the Psalms of Book 4, gotcha. and then putting that in place and, and, and so on from there. Gotcha. So, yeah, that's, that's helpful. If, uh, I think some people, when they hear arrange the canon or they hear arrange the psalms like oh does that not mean that it's inspired that right. it's not just oh it kind of came down from heaven that there's yeah. all of this is an inspired process that's right and and i think that you know when you look at individual psalms i think 
often what you find is a profound and pervasive literary unity within that individual psalm. Um, and, and so I'm not inclined to think that someone like Ezra came along and tinkered with and added stuff into existing psalms. Yeah. I am inclined to think that he had a light editorial hand and that his work was mainly in the form of selecting and arranging and juxtaposing things uh, as he saw to be best. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah, just to have that very clear for our audience if they have questions about some of this, 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 this language that we're using too. Um, and so with this background as well, with the structure, who authored this, how it's compiled, all that stuff, and who it's for. So where, where do the Psalms fit in redemptive history? Where, like, where do they fit kind of the chronology of the Bible? Because it sounds like they're not just written at one time. It's this long kind of process. How do they fit in the Bible? Well, I think they fit a, a lot like Exodus 15 fits, you know, so um, God redeems Israel from Egypt, and then the people of Israel celebrate that with the song of the sea in Exodus 15. And then you have David come along, and the Lord works in David's life significantly, and David celebrates the Lord's deliverance of him, of him uh, with these psalms that not only talk about what God has done for David, but also put that um, in, in context of what God has done for his people all the way back from creation forward mm. and, and anticipating what God is going to do in the future. So, for instance, in Psalm 18, um, the psalm is superscripted, um, a psalm of David, the servant of Yahweh, which ties him to Moses, the servant of Yahweh, which he sang to the Lord on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of Saul and from all his enemies. And then as David begins in Psalm 18, um, after he recounts how he loves the Lord and he was in difficulty and he called on the Lord, when he starts talking about the Lord going into action on, it, on his behalf around verses six or seven, it really starts sounding like Mount Sinai. Hmm. And it's, it's almost as though David is saying, what God did for me, you know, so it's not, David is not saying Saul threw a spear at me and God <laughs> made it miss, you know, yeah. David is saying, um, uh, I was in difficulty. The cords of death surrounded me and I called on the Lord. And then there was an earthquake and the, the heavens went dark and lightning began to flash and smoke came out of his nostrils. It, it's like he's describing the Exodus 19 Sinai theophany. <laughs> and I think that the reason David is doing that is he wants his audience to see that what God did for Israel at the Exodus is like what God did for David when he saved him from the hand of Saul and from the hand of his, all his enemies. And then later in the Psalm, um, David says, he sent from on high, this is around verse 16 or so. He says, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of the many waters. And the only two places, well, three, okay? So Psalm 18, the content of Psalm 18 is the same as 2 Samuel 22, okay? So two of the three instances are in yeah. Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22. Yeah, yeah. The other instance of that verb, drew me out, you know where it is? What, what does that make you think of? He drew me out of many waters. What, what comes to mind? Probably the Exodus. Yes, and specifically Pharaoh's daughter. Said, when oh, it said, Exodus too, yeah. She named him Moses for she yeah. said, I drew him out of the waters. Yeah. It's almost like David is saying, when you think of me, I want you to think of Moses. Hmm. Now, why would David say that? What? what? So <clears throat> those, are the, those are the facts. The only, only yeah. two instances of this verb 
in the Hebrew Bible are Exodus 2.10 and then Psalm 18 and then 2 Samuel 22, which is the same text. Why would David do that? I think the answer is David understood that in the same way that God made a covenant with Moses at the Exodus, God made a covenant with David about the future king from his line. And Moses was the covenant mediator. David is the covenant mediator. And, you know, so then, so this is David celebrating what God has done in his life, Mm -hmm. interpreting it through the lens of the Exodus. And then at the end of the Psalm, he says these words around verse 50, 51, he says, great salvation he brings for his king, for David and his seed forever. And so it's like he's saying, what God did for us at the Exodus is what God did for us in my life, and it's what he's going to do in the life of the one to come. And and the seed of promise that God, you know, said he would raise up for my line, who would reign forever in 2 Samuel 7. Okay, so um, how does this fit in sort of redemptive history? Well, what we're what we're seeing is the way that that poetry and music and worship these these culture shaping culture forming um, um, artistic productions it's it's the way that they celebrate and interpret and reinforce the story so the psalms play the same function in in the life of the people of god that things like the national anthem uh, the, the, the way it, it functions the way the national anthem functions for americans or for you know canadians or whatever yeah people yeah, yeah. Like the constitution or like the songs that you sing as a country exactly and and so what the national what the national anthem does for patriotic americans is it says Um, Our country was in great difficulty and we survived that night of battle and um, we have we 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 have this wonderful place of freedom in which we live and we honor the flag and we we're we're thankful to those who have made sacrifices um, in in the military and so forth to preserve and defend our freedoms. So it's it's retelling the story. You know, you've got the flag with stripes and stars and so forth. It's rehearsing um, everything for us. And it's also encouraging us to enjoy the baseball game or whatever it is that we're about to enjoy, you know. Um, Well, in the same way in Old Covenant Israel, uh, the Psalms would celebrate what God had done for them in the past and uh, encourage them in the present with an eye to the future as their story was retold and rehearsed in this artistic way. Mm. That's awesome. Amen. The Bible is so good. (laughs) Yeah, that was great. I could I could listen to you talk about the Psalms for a lot longer than this episode would (laughs) allow. We got we got twelve hundred pages we can read on them. Yeah. yeah. So there there are different types of Psalms. There's laments and praise, thanksgiving, celebration, wisdom, um, confidence. um, You know, historical and prophetic hymns and whatnot so could you give us some advice on how to best read these categories maybe even recognize which one is which sure so i think that the best way uh to deal with these these so-called um genre labels or or however you want to categorize these is to um you know if you find them helpful great the best thing to do is to read the text closely. And, um, you know, many of these categorizations arose 
in the 1800s in Germany, and they stem from a guy named Hermann Gunkel. Mm -hmm. and, and then they were developed further by his students. And uh, some of them are helpful, some of them are not. And, and some of them are frankly speculative. Mm -hmm. And, and they're, they're, they're interpretive, and the interpretations don't always account for everything that's actually in the text of the psalm. Mm -hmm. So I think a better procedure than using these, these form critical categories that have been handed down to us by post-Enlightenment Germans, I think a better strategy is to say, I want to know the Psalms backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. And I want to use the actual terms that are in the Psalms themselves. And so, for instance, you know, sometimes people will talk about a royal Psalm or a wisdom Psalm. But then when you actually get into the body of the Psalms, you'll say, well, here's here in this so-called wisdom psalm, there's a reference to the king. And they'll be like, yeah, I know the, the, the categories are not airtight. And, and you know, the, the, these terms are not the terms that the psalmists themselves put in the superscriptions of the psalms. Yeah. So, and, and then further from that, I think sometimes um, because of these terms, you know, people, you'll, you'll have, for instance, all this talk about, now, you'll have a lot of references to lament, mm -hmm. and, and there, there's kind of this assumption that in the Psalter, there's a whole lot of lamentation. Well, there is some lamentation. There's a lot of celebration, too, and even in the laments, the, even, even in the, the darkest laments of the Psalter, like Psalm 88 is often referred to as the darkest and bleakest of the Psalms. Well, even in that Psalm, the psalmist is calling on the name of the Lord. And, and he's not, there's several things he's not doing. He's not saying, actually, you know, this Yahweh guy, I'm not sure he's faithful. He, he, he's not saying, actually, you know, this Yahweh guy, guy, I don't think he can fix things. He's not saying anything like that. And he's, and he's certainly not saying, actually, you know, this Yahweh guy, I don't think he's wise. And I think I'm justified in being righteously indignant with reference to him. No way, never, nothing close to that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that sometimes these terms, you know, they, they sort of get lodged in our thinking and then people start, they start assuming that, that there are things going on in the Psalms that when you actually look at the Psalms, they're not doing that at all. They're, they're still saying Yahweh's the righteous one. Yahweh's the one with the answers. Yahweh's wise, and we trust him. And yeah, we're in a bad situation, and we need him right now. You know, so it, it's a very different perspective than than uh, those than the perspective of a lot of people who talk about the Psalms. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, helpful. Yeah, it's uh, getting to know the the Psalms and using the language the Psalms itself uses instead of imposing the stuff that that we might impose onto it, and maybe coming to a different interpretation than the Psalmist himself would have come to it or the new Testament writers would have come to it as well. Um, and so that, that's, that's helpful too. And I think it's a different way of thinking about it than most people think about it. Like, Oh, this is a praise Psalm. Let's sing it like a praise Psalm or this yeah. is lament Psalms. We can only lament during this Psalm um, yeah. versus, yeah, that's, that's a good, it's a good way of, of thinking about this. And so this, this next question is kind of broad, but I think it's also really helpful for people. How do the Psalms maybe in general, and then maybe particularly in a couple of Psalms, but you mean mostly in general, how do they point us to Christ? Like what, what do the Psalms play in pointing us to Christ? So I think that, um, you know, in the, you, we all have a worldview. You, you, you and I, um, all three of us, Nick, Peter, Jim, we all have a worldview. Uh -huh. 
And for instance, I'm an Arkansas Razorbacks fan. All right. <laughs> yeah. And and that's not going to change if the Razorbacks football team is terrible, as it has been for a number of years now. Yeah. And it's not going to change when the baseball team is awesome. So right now, the Razorbacks are the number one team in the country yep. in, in baseball. It's awesome. It's so fun <laughs> to be a Razorback fan right now. They're, they're so fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, so if I start, if I say to someone uh, something like, you know, the only sport I've really paid attention to over the last few months has been college baseball. What I really mean there is I'm watching the Razorbacks. That's what I mean. And that's the reality. I'm not out there watching the Auburn Tigers, and I'm not out there watching Texas Tech or, you know, uh, any other. I'm paying attention to the Razorbacks. That's who I'm watching. Mm -hmm. Now, I might say more broadly college baseball, but what's in my mind is the number one team in the nation, the Arkansas Razorbacks, you know. And I think it's the same for the psalmists. They might say broadly, um, we long for your salvation, O Lord. But for them, they have very specific scriptures on how that salvation is going to come. Mm -hmm. It's going to come as a realization of the, uh, the promise embedded in the statement of judgment spoken over the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Yeah. Which is which is developed in the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, one through three, which is further developed in the words about the king from the, the line of Judah in Genesis 49, which is further developed in the promises to David in 2 Samuel 7. So I, the Psalms point us to Christ in by by saying, you know, we long for your salvation. What they mean is, Lord, we're longing for the Messiah to come. Hmm. We're longing for the future king from David's line to come and be king over us and defeat the wicked and punish them as, as is their due and relieve the oppressed and deliver us as we're yearning for him to do. And as we need him to do. Um, so the Psalms point us to Christ by reinforcing and retelling the, the, the story that is, that is uh, uh, unfolded from Genesis to Kings. Mm-hmm. And, and then um, the new Testament authors are claiming that that story is fulfilled in Christ and carried forward through what Christ and the Spirit have done uh, in the church. Um, so, so the Psalms, I think, they're, they're pervasively pointing us to Christ, even when they're not specifically mentioning the king, the promise to David, though they do that, they do that often. Yeah. It's always implicitly there in the same way that if you ask me, are you going to watch the SEC tournament this week? And I say, Oh, of course I'm going to be paying attention to the S. What I really mean is I'm going to be watching the Razorbacks, you know, (laughs) that's who I'm paying attention to. And if the Razorbacks get eliminated from the tournament, I'm done with the tournament. (laughs) (laughs) If Alabama wins the SEC tournament and Arkansas is not playing them in the final, I am not going to be paying attention to the final. I got better things to do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, So I think it's the same way with the psalmists. They're longing for the salvation that God has promised to bring about and so when they speak in general terms about redemption or about, um, you know, the promise of the Lord, they have the specifics that are laid out in earlier scripture in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Kind of circling back towards the beginning of the episode, we were talking a lot about the foundation and structure uh, background, authorship, the authors, the, the history. Um, how does the understanding of those things and the audience of the Psalms help us read it actually today? 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big believer in and adherent of authorial intent. Hmm. And so um, I think the que- we, we have, we have a, a couple of different questions to ask when we look at the Psalms and, and we ask about authorial intent. One of them is, what did the individual psalmist who composed this mean? And, and so that's our first question. Yeah. And then a second question is, what did the, the um, I don't know if you want to refer to him as the, the final editor or the anthologist mm-hmm. or whoever we want to attribute the final canonical form of the Psalms to, what did that person who put the book of Psalms together, how did that person intend this Psalm to function in its canonical context? Yeah. Um, and so, so to answer that question, I think we're really, we're getting at what's the worldview of the psalmist. And, and to answer that question, we really have to know the rest of the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then, you know, praise God, uh, even within the Old Testament itself, you have authors later than the, Sal- than the Psalter quoting Psalms. Mm. So, for instance, um, in, in um, Psalm 72, I think David prays for Solomon, um, may his dominion be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, in, in Zechariah chapter 9, that line is quoted in Zechariah 9.10, right after Zechariah 9.9, that text we're all familiar with, yep. behold, your king comes to you humble and mounted on a donkey, yep. and then the intervening words, and then in Zechariah 9.10, Zechariah quotes Psalm 72. This tells us that yes, David prayed Psalm 72 about Solomon, but Zechariah was hoping that it would be fulfilled in the life of the future king because Zechariah lived after Solomon. So uh, to understand um, Psalm 72, we can look at how the inspired author Zechariah has quoted, has interpreted and quoted and understood the anticipated fulfillment of Psalm 72. So... um, so when we ask about worldview, I think we should assume, and you know, it's not a, it's not an unwarranted assumption. Yeah. We should assume Zechariah believes the same thing David believed, and and David believes the same thing that um, uh, Elijah and Elisha believed, and Elijah and Elisha believe the same thing that Joshua believed, and Joshua believed the same thing that Moses believed. Yeah. And 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 you know, we can demonstrate from what they write, from what they actually say that these guys are in agreement with one another. None of them is saying, no Old Testament author and no New Testament author either says anything like this. You know, that book of Genesis, it claims that Yahweh made the world by his word. Actually, we know that that's not the way it came about. You know, in reality, there was this conflict between Marduk and Baal and Tiamat, and uh, one of them got the battle axe out and split the other in half and built the heavens with one half of her and the earth with, no, none of them is repudiating the statements in earlier scripture and then offering an alternative worldview. They're all, they're all operating out of this worldview that shares all the fundamental uh, mainstay big ideas. Hmm. Yahweh made the world. It was all very good. It was defiled by human sin. That brings death into the world. But Yahweh promised he was going to overcome death yeah. by crushing the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman. And then down from there, you know? Yeah, love yeah. it. And t- times changed uh, throughout the writing of the Psalms because it sounds like it went over a long period of time, but the same need was there to point towards a savior. 
yes same equal need pointing towards jesus from the beginning of when moses wrote the first psalm to the very last psalm of 150 so actually this is a side question i was curious with and i I think that a lot of the audience would be wondering is do we know about when i know you said moses could be one of the authors um and so what do we know about when it was started to be written and how long it took to write the span of those 150 psalms um the the answer to that question is no we don't know i mean we can i think we can say um by the time of moses or at at moses time we have psalm 90 and i don't i don't think we would have anything that we could clearly date earlier than Mm -hmm. moses uh in psalm 90. it's fascinating i think a lot of people are, are unaware of this. They don't realize this, but in first Chronicles chapter 16. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there are different, there are different interpretations about the genealogies in the book of Chronicles. I'm a, I'm a very conservative person. I'm a very conservative interpreter. And so I would date the end of the genealogies uh, in Chronicles to roughly the time of Ezra, Nehemiah and, and, um, uh, Malachi, you know, 400s BC. There are there are some interpreters who want to suggest that uh, that those names can be traced back uh, even later than that. But I, I I'm inclined to think that the time of Ezra and Nehemiah is the is around the time when the last Old Testament books were written, yep. and probably the whole Old Testament was put together. Well, in First Chronicles 16:36, um, the the very end of Psalm 106 is quoted. And it's quoted with its concluding genealogy. In in 1 Chronicles 16, 35 and 36, we read, Save us, O God of our salvation, I was alluding to this just a moment ago, and gather us and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory and your praise. And then the the doxology at the end of 106 is also quoted. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. This indicates that... The chronicler, whoever wrote the book of Chronicles, I think around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, maybe Ezra did it. He knew Psalm 106 in the form in which we have it, including the, the uh, doxology at the end of it. And then um, uh, later in Chronicles, in, uh, in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 29, I believe it is. Second, yeah, Second Chronicles 29, verse 30, we read, Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to Yahweh with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. That sounds to me like Hezekiah is saying, use the Psalms, specifically the ones written by David and Asaph, in your worship of Yahweh. So this would indicate that, at, you know, you've got at least some of the Psalms by Hezekiah's time, by the time of the chronicler, I think that statement in, in uh, first Chronicles 16 indicates that, that perhaps you've got all the Psalms. Hmm. So this would differ from a lot of people who want to push, you know, the closing of the old Testament canon oh, much yeah. later than that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To kind of start wrapping up the episode. Um, I'm sure you guys have learned quite a bit from this. I'd love to know if you had a favorite psalm of yours. Um, you know, what, yeah, that's what a, one kind of pop, pop us <laughs> up. Yeah. Uh, that's a little bit like asking, um, 
you know, do you have a favorite finger? I mean, I, you know, I need them all. Um, <laughs> um, but the one that I, the ones that I probably uh, talk about most to, um, to illustrate what I think is going on in the Psalter would be like Psalm 18. Um, so, so in terms of how to interpret the Psalms, how to understand the Psalms, Psalm 18 probably is my favorite, but if it comes to like, like pastoral counseling or what I would pray for people who are really suffering, perhaps I'm probably going to go to Psalm 34, you know, Psalm 34 around, uh, verse five, the Psalmist says, um, those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. And so, you know, I'll, I'll often, uh, in, in pastoral counseling situations, refer to that, make reference to that verse. And then just a couple of verses later in Psalm 34, seven, uh, David says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And that's just such a beautiful, encouraging promise. And then a few verses later in the Psalm verse 18, um, David says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So Psalm 34 is probably my favorite for like, you know, pastoral ministry. Psalm 18 is probably my favorite for, uh, you know, illustrating what's going on in the Psalter and, and talking about how to interpret it. Cool. Yeah, that's good. And then maybe to add on top of that, kind of a, a follow-up is what, what Psalm has maybe the most surprising redemptive connection that people don't necessarily think about that's either alluded to in the New Testament or is applied or, or something like that. Something that's surprising. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. A, a lot of people really love, and, and justly so, a lot of people really love Psalm 46. It's a glorious Psalm. I think people don't typically read it as an apocalyptic Psalm, an huh. end of the world Psalm. Um, but it is, I mean, the, you know, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way. Well, when does the Bible teach that that's going to happen? Right. And then a few verses later, it says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And everybody knows there's no river in the historical Jerusalem. Where is, a, where's the river in Jerusalem? Well, it's in Zechariah 13, it's in Ezekiel 47, it's in Revelation 22. And I think that uh, David, or, or sorry, the son of Korah, who wrote this psalm, is talking about the same, that same eschatological city of Jerusalem. And, um, and then uh, a little bit later in Psalm 46, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. Well, when's that going to happen? When are they going to beat their swords into plowshare, yeah. plowshares because they're not going to need weapons anymore? At the end of all things. And... Um, and again, Psalm 46 is, is strategically placed. It follows Psalm 45, which is a celebration of the wedding of the king from David's line. Ah. So the Messiah, you have, you, if I'm going to put it this way, you know, intentionally, you have the wedding feast of the lamb in Psalm 45, and then you have the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and new earth in Psalm 46. And then in Psalm 47, Clap your hands, all peoples. All the nations are summoned to praise. And then in Psalm 48, you know, they celebrate the eschatological city of God. It's, it's really uh, a surprising and glorious flow of thought through the Psalter. And, and before Psalm 45, in Psalm 44, you have the people of God suffering through difficulty and affliction. It's the Psalm. Psalm 44 is the one that Paul is quoting in Romans 8. We are like sheep to the slaughter. You know, we are reckoned. So God's people are suffering. Where does that lead? How does that end uh, with the with the king coming for his wedding in Psalm 45? Hmm. And then what happens? Well, 
uh, the new city in 46, and then all the nations praise in 47, and then they, they see the glory of God on display in the city in 48, and it, it's really magnificent. That is cool. Yeah, that's, I think, uh, I think this is exposing the people that the Psalms is, is much, much, much thicker than they originally thought it was. Yeah. Um, an application and, and pointing us to Christ, that's, that's fantastic. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for bringing us through that stuff. My pleasure. Um, so maybe to wrap this up, so after after you uh, after you guide people's hands through the Book of Psalms as they read through this, as they see all these allusions and all these New Testament applications and pointing to Christ, I'm assuming they're going to want more of your work. And how can how can Dr. Hamilton help me understand the Bible a little bit better through some of his writings? So do you have any other projects that you're working on or things that people can read that help them read the Bible better? Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, um, I wrote a little book called What Is Biblical Theology which, um, you know, earlier we were talking about um, how Moses and Joshua and Isaiah and David and all these guys believe the same thing. And I would say that, you know, Jesus learned from them and at the human level, you know, he's God, but he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And then uh, Paul learned from Jesus and, and uh, all the Old Testament uh, prophets and so forth. And I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand and embrace uh, the worldview of the biblical authors. And that's really what I think biblical theology is. And that's what I'm after in that little book, What is Biblical Theology? The, the answer to that question is, biblical theology, in my view, biblical theology is the, the attempt to understand and embrace the worldview or the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. I'm trying to, to do that in God's glory and salvation through judgment as well. And then um, I've recently completed a book on typology uh, that... Lord willing, uh, will appear early 2022 from Zondervan. Yeah, I saw that work. Yep, that was great. Yeah, so, um, uh, I'm really excited about that book, happy with it, really um, thankful and pleased with the way it turned out. Um, and then I've, I've recently agreed, you know, this, this commentary on Psalms is coming out from Lexham Press. Yeah. And um, they've, they've, um, they just emailed me a contract to write a book with my friend, and uh, fellow pastor Matt D'Amico on how to read the Psalms. Huh. So uh, that one's, you know, that one's more in the works <laughs> yeah. down the road. Uh, yeah. But the, 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 the Psalms commentary, you know, it, it's going to look like the Psalms commentary and the typology book were done at like the same time. They really weren't. <laughs> yeah. the way that, that's the timing in which they appear. Yeah. So great. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'd love to have you back on to talk about your, your upcoming books because this is, this has been a great conversation thankful for having you on and, and leading us through the Psalms in a redemptive way, pointing us to Christ. Oh, praise the Lord. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much. Are you looking for a reformed church in the Orange County, Santa Ana area? We'll be starting our study through the book of Judges, as well as diving into Reverend Danny Hyde's Welcome to Reform Church beginning weekly on December 2nd, which is a Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. If you'd like updates and information on joining our core group, email us at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com or head to either GuiltGracePod or SantaAnnaURC on Twitter or find the link in the show notes to learn more. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is 
enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are, are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on anchor our official anchor website if you just go on um, our social media links it'll it'll link you to that website it's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes if you're on this podcast this specific episode scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating so we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap pay for shipping get nicer stuff all for the focus of spreading the gospel further Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.